0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 Conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in Heaven, thank you again uh, for your love and how we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things. Be our real teacher. And may the Spirit of God here be here to help us and to make clear for us these wonderful truths that Paul has laid down for us. It's been such a blessing, such a life-changing experience for so many millions of Christians down through the ages. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, um, I'm going to try to pick right up where I left off, which is Romans chapter uh, 8. And uh, Romans 8... And we will pick up with the, Chris, we'll pick up with the um, the slave business here. Um, you know, the minute you mention slave, particularly in an American context, it's a pretty ugly word, isn't it? But Paul uses that here quite a bit as he, I, you remember the, I talked last time I left off with consider him dead, I don't know if you remember that, and we drew the heart and in the, in the throne and the jail and All of those kinds of things. But we want to get in now. I want to pick up where uh, I left off from that. And um, again, I'm looking at chapter 6. And I'm looking at verse 14. Or maybe I could just go back up to verse 12 if you have your Bibles here. Chapter 7, verse 12. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 6. Therefore, because Christ is now seated on the throne of our life. And what do we do from thrones? We give orders. So if Christ is seated on the throne of my life, he's giving orders for my life. Does he want to give orders for just uh, eight hours of the day? Or does he want to give orders for 24 hours of the day? And we want him to do that. Now, he's not there to take away our freedom. Um, Ellen White makes a very interesting statement. I can't give you the reference, but she says that at some point that our very... Desires become his. Our desires begin to reflect his desires. Our very will begins to reflect his will. Um, But Paul is going to use the slave thing, and I hope that it can be. Some of you are still coming in. Please feel free to come on down, find a seat, and we'll get in that. Okay, let's look at verse 12. Therefore, because Christ, born again experience, Christ is reigning in my life, the old man is in jail. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal life. That word reign is a word that means to rule. Do not let sin rule uh, in your mortal body, but that you may obey its lust. In other words, whoever is ruling here in your decision-making process is going to dictate what you do. And so if if the old carnal nature is there, it will tell you to obey the lust. And we've already talked about what lust is. Lust is a perversion of of a good thing, and it turns it something that's good into something that's not so good. And if you remember, some of you, we use the word hunger. Is hunger a good thing? It's a good thing. If you didn't get hungry, you wouldn't be alive. You get hungry, you eat. And without that, you wouldn't eat. So, But can hunger be twisted into something that's bad? Okay, can be perverted or can become a lust. That's what lust is, perverting of something good into something that's not so good. And then verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. This is Paul, a great theme from the Apostle Paul. He says, sin is not going to rule, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, have you ever had your evangelical friends or some other friends say to you, see, I don't have to keep the Sabbath because I'm not under the law, but I am under... So what do you say to that? Yeah. You don't need grace if the if the law has been done away with. If the law is still in vogue, you're going to need grace. And it's talked about two things here in, in essence, and they're kind of round up, bound up in one. One is, and Galatians is even far more clear on this. And I don't I don't have a, um, I don't have time to get in Galatians, although I would I would love to. I'm sitting here watering at the mouth wanting to get into Galatians. But Galatians clearly, even more clearly, I think, than the book of Romans does, is telling us that the old, the old sanctuary, the temporary sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary that was meant to be temporary, that that has been done away with. It's finished. Why is it done away with? because it's found its fulfillment in Christ. And that means the ceremonial law as well as the moral law. So it doesn't mean that the laws have been done away with. And let me explain something here that that a lot of people miss. When Jesus said, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy but to fulfill. He meant exactly that. The ceremonial law, now listen to me carefully, and don't get this mixed up. And I think I can get myself out of this okay. But the ceremonial law has never been done away with. Just letting that sink in. It's never been done away with because Christ is now the ceremonial law. He's now fulfilled the ceremonial law. The symbolic ceremonial law is no longer in effect. The symbolic sanctuary is no longer in effect. The earthly sanctuary that was temporary, was always meant to be temporary, is now gone. But the reality is in place. And if the ceremonial law in heaven with Christ as the high priest were not in place, neither you nor I would be drawn to repentance. It is the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary and so Jesus is absolutely right. He's not in contradiction with either Paul or Galatians. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've come to what? Carry them into effect. So, and that's why I don't keep the old feast days. I don't need to keep the feast days. Hallelujah. Why? Because they are being fulfilled by Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. I don't need to kill a lamb anymore because I have the living Christ who offers himself in my place, and I have a heavenly sanctuary. Do Seventh Day Adventists have a temple? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, yes. We do, and where is it at? In heaven. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. So there is that one sense that I'm under the law is the Jewish mindset that I've still got to serve these ceremonial laws, these earthly, temporary, symbolic ceremonial laws. To them became a reality, and to them it was the way of salvation. And they felt they had to continue to do that. And so in a sense, uh, Paul is saying, in one sense, he's saying you're no longer under that earthly Sanctuary. You no longer need circumcision. You no longer need that because it's now fulfilled in Christ. And there's another sense that I'm under the condemnation of the law because the law always does what? To the sinner. It condemns him. But if I'm under grace, I'm no longer under the condemnation of the law or the penalty of the law. And that's good news for every sinner. But just because I'm not under the condemnation of the law, that doesn't give me the right to go and disobey the law. And in the, in, the, in the earthly sanctuary, which is a teacher of all these things, the moral law was wrapped by the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, what he's doing for us in heaven. And the moral law is what he's trying to, uh, the, the ceremony law is trying to bring us back into harmony with the moral law. Isn't that the work of Jesus You'll see that as we go through there. So to be under grace doesn't do away with the law. To be under grace establishes the law. Verse 15. What shall we say? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law? If this doesn't clear it up, I don't know what does. But under grace, what is sin? Romans chapter 4. Without the, uh, uh, yeah, it, without the requirements or meeting the requirements of the law, uh, Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Sin is a transgression of the law. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Well, sin is a transgression of the law, so obviously the law has not been done away with. I'll give you some other stuff on that when we get to chapter 8. In these few minutes we've got here. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave that you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to life. Now, see, he says, basically, you have two choices here. You can be a slave of Christ or you can be a slave of yourself and the devil, which is really one and the same. Uh, I want to tell a story right here. It was Alex Haley in his book, Roots, who some years ago... Uh, wrote a book called Roots, and in it he tells a story of Chicken George. Anybody remember the story of Chicken George? I don't see many of you saying that you do. You might in a moment. Chicken George was a slave to his master, and one thing that his master loved to do was to fight chickens, roosters, and uh, they would put these two roosters in a pit and they'd fight to the death. That's been outlawed, and it should. It's a cruelty kind of a thing. At any rate, Uh, But that was a big deal in those days. And he had a slave that he called Chicken George. And Chicken George was his master's right-hand person. I mean, Chicken George is the one that bred these chickens and just kind of chose what one. The master really relied on Chicken George. Anyway, the word got out that a very wealthy Englishman was coming, and he was challenging anybody to fight his English-bred roosters. And um, the word got out. And sure enough, the guy came, and they had a big deal, and they're all there. And are getting ready to be there. Before that happens, however, the master goes to Chicken George. And he says to Chicken George, he says, uh, Chicken George, he says, uh, this Englishman is coming and he's, he's uh, wealthy and he's betting, uh, willing to bet lots of money on a chicken fight. What do you think? Oh, he says, we, we've got to do that. And then Chicken George did something that was unusual. You have to understand that Chicken George and Matilda, his wife, had been saving a dime here and a dime there, working hard in and outside the master's place to save enough money to buy their, you want to fill in the word, their freedom. And they had saved an immense sum in those days. Uh, If I remember the figure of about $2,000, it was a lot of money to save poor slaves. And Chicken George looked at his master and he says, Master, he says, please don't get me wrong. He says, but we've been saving, saving money to buy our freedom. But he says, I will put my money with yours for this chicken fight so we can just double our money. And the master almost hugged his slave. The day of the chicken fight came. And um, Englishman was there. A huge crowd of people was there. Chicken George chose a chicken or a rooster. He licked down its feathers. They handed it to his master. And uh, they put those chickens in the pit, said pit. And those chickens went at each other. Now, my daughter has chickens, and she has a couple of three roosters. And one of those roosters will come after me every time I'm there. I have to teach him a really quick lesson with my foot. And he's got a short memory. (laughs) Now You put those chickens in there, they're going to go after each other. And so they went after each other, and it was Chicken George's Chicken that killed the Englishman's chicken. And everybody erupted. Chicken George was so happy. He was shouting. and said, we're free. We're free. We're free. And, and they, they, the celebration was just going on. And we're free. We're free. And all of a sudden, above the din of the celebration came the voice of an Englishman dressing the master of Chicken George. And he said, sir, would you be willing To wage all of your earnings on one more chicken fight. And the master of Chicken George looked confused. He didn't know what to say. And he turned and he looked at Chicken George. And Chicken George looked at him and he said, Sir, our chickens can whoop any of that Englishman's chickens. Suddenly, the master found his composure. He turned to the Englishman with a a voice of of, uh, confidence. And he says, sir, we would be glad to wage all of our earnings on one more chicken fight. And so Chicken George chose the chicken, chose the rooster. But this time it was the Englishman's rooster spur that found the neck of Chicken George's chicken. Chicken George picked up that dead chicken and began to weep. But I want to ask you a question. What did Chicken George love most, freedom or chicken fighting? What did he love most, freedom or chicken fighting? He had the choice. He had the freedom. If you really loved freedom, why would you chance it on another chicken fight? So, what do we love most? Sin or freedom? Sin is deadly stuff, and it's amazing how much of eternal freedom we wager on our love for sin. The only way that sin can be conquered in our life is to love the freedom that Christ gives us more than the temporary pleasures of another chicken fight. The chapter closes with, the wages of sin is but the gift of God. If you become become the servant of the Lord Jesus, it's his intention not to make you his slave, but to make you his child. And it's the intention of the devil to make you his slave and to kill you in the process. Chapter 7. It's a very misunderstood. I, I've read it outside the Adventist Church and inside the commentaries. And we need to get this. And a lot of our friends, they love to quote this. I'll read it and then I'll tell you a story. Or do you not know, brethren, chapter 7, verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I who speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives... Have you ever seen a sheriff out in the graveyard with his gun drawn and his handcuffs and the other hand over somebody's grave and said, I'm here to arrest you? Why does that not happen? Because the man's dead and the law has no more dominion over him. For the woman, and I'm not going to get into divorce and marriage here, I'm not getting into that this afternoon, but... The illustration is for something else. You'll see that in a moment. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you have also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. And there our friends will say, see, see, we're we're dead to the law. Well, just wait a minute. To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which are aroused by the law were at work in the members, our members, to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the letter and not in the oldness of the letter. You Adventists serve in the oldness of that old Sabbath, but we serve in the newness. Wait a minute. This is a parable. What did I say it was? Okay. I said it was what? A parable. It's not a true story that I know of. There was once a man who married a woman and they lived together and he was a terrible guy. He was uh, verbally abusive to his wife. He beat her. He made life miserable for her. But every once in a while, he would take off on a long trip, two, three months at a time. And while he's gone on that trip, she was at peace because he wasn't around. Then he'd come home and the misery would start all over again. One of those times when she was gone, she went down to the park and many people were there. And while she was there, she ran into another man, a very nice person, very kind. And she just couldn't help but compare how nice he was to her husband. Now, he was totally appropriate nothing inappropriate. But on the way home, she said to herself, I wish I could be married to that man. But then the law said, another voice said, but the law says... Now, please don't get the idea. I've got to to throw the disclaimers in here. This is a what? And I'm not suggesting that if your husband's beating you that you stay, okay? I'm not suggesting that. So please get off of that and just stay with me for the parable's sake. What did I say this was? Parable. So on the way home, she says she thinks that, but then another voice comes in and says, But the law says... And so she comes back. And he comes home. Life is miserable. But every time he leaves, she goes down the park and she visits with this person. And everything is totally appropriate. Just that on the way home, there's a voice that says, wouldn't it be nice if you could be married? And then another voice comes in and says, but the law says. My wife doesn't like this parable, by the way. And I don't blame her, but I haven't found a better one to get the point across, so I just thought I'd share that for what it's worth, department. My parable. Well, one day her husband went away on another one of his mysterious business trips, and he was gone for some time, and she went out to pick up the morning paper, and she opened up the paper, and it says, Headlines, Notorious Criminal Executed for Awful crime. She said, oh, I wonder what that's about. So she started reading, and then she read her husband's name. And she started to be happy. Then she kind of caught herself, a little embarrassed. But her husband, on these business trips, had been doing some pretty awful things. And the government found him and legitimately executed him. Well, in the course of time, she goes down to the park again and there's that really nice man that she's had such a nice visit with and she had a nice visit with him again, everything appropriate. And on the way home, she said to herself, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could be married to that man? But this time there was no voice that said, but the law says. In the course of time, She falls in love with him. He falls in love with her. And they get married or just before they get married. He says, now I have to tell you something that I've never told you. He says, I am uh, the king of this country. And I was here, people not knowing who I was. to find the love of my life. And he says, you have to know something else. It was on my orders that we executed your husband. I know what you're thinking, but don't think that. It's a parable, remember. And because of these horrible crimes that he had committed. And so they were married. Now, let me ask you a question. I know this is going to get stereotyped, but this is a parable. Under When she was married to that old man that was making her life miserable and just, you know, just awful, uh, were there still... Domestic chores to do? Were there dishes to wash? I'm not saying you shouldn't help your wife wash the dishes, okay? Get the disclaimers in there. But were there still chores? She's now married to this man that she loves, and are there still chores to do? Over here doing these chores, she's terribly unhappy. Over here doing these chores, she's wonderfully happy. Tell me what made the difference. Now let me tell you this. When you were born, you were married to the old carnal nature that sat on the throne of your life and ruled your life. And he's miserable. He's just like that old husband of hers. If she stays married to him, he's going to kill her. And if you stay married to your carnal nature, he'll kill you. Now, he may, it may seem nice for a while, but at some point, he's going to show himself for what he is. And what Jesus did on Calvary's cross is he took your carnal nature to Calvary's cross. And he legitimately killed him. And now you may be married to Christ. Now, let me ask another question to my evangelical friends, and to some of my Adventist friends. So what about the law? Did the law ever change? The law never changed. The same law that ruled over this now rules over this. Am I right? If you illegitimately get a divorce from this man over here, the law says you can't be married to somebody else or there's a death penalty. Am I right? But now that you're married to Christ by the grace of God and you decide to get a divorce and Jesus will let you do that, if you're foolish enough to do it, what will it cost you in the end? Because there's a law that never changes. Still with me? Are you grateful for the law? Aren't you glad it doesn't change? Now I'm going to tell you why it's so important that it doesn't change. And this time business is awful. What am I supposed to leave to be done here? Four o'clock. Okay, we're going to see how we do. Let's go down to chapter 7. What shall we say then? Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And the answer is what? Certainly not. Or God forbid if you've got the old King James. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness. What What law is he quoting from? Ten Commandments. Unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Carnal nature does that. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came and sin revived, I died. You may say, Oh, I may have been ignorant. So some of us have talked about it. some people sin in ignorance, but the law of God takes away our ignorance. By the way, uh, Ignorance is no excuse before the law. Am I right? Even in America, it's no excuse. For sin taking, uh, verse 11, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it killed me. Therefore, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment of holy just and good. I want to uh, go back to verse 10. And the commandment, which was to bring what? Now, I said this before, but I want to underline that here because this is a major text. God's 10 commandments were never given as something that's arbitrary. God didn't just wake up one morning, and I say that in in a Human sense and say, you know what, I'm going to create the world and I've got a bunch of laws that I'm going to make and I just like making laws. And I think I like this one and I think I like that one, I like that one, and they'll just have to obey them because I'm God. He never did that. What God did is He made law to be essential to life. In other words, God rules the universe through His laws. His laws produce organization, and I said this before, I'll say it again. Without organization, you die. Your body dies without organization. Um... Death is a result of the body's disorganization. So every law that God made is absolutely essential to life. Therefore, it's necessary for us to obey the law, to be brought into harmony with its requirements, and grace is given to us, and the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross and his power, not to give us the power to disobey, but to give us the power to obey the law. And that's where a lot of our evangelical friends mess up. It was well said this morning in, uh, in the sermon uh, by Pastor David Shin. Um, the sanctuary, if you take all three parts of the sanctuary you, in the Holy of Holies, what do you come face to face with? You come face to face with two things. You come face to face with the Ten Commandments in the Ark of God, and you come face to face, hallelujah, with the mercy seat. But there are a lot of people, and many evangelicals believe this this way, that, sent, that God's grace is an indulgent license to do what I want to do. No, God's grace is to change my heart, give me a born-again experience, and by His power bring me into submission to the law of God. Amen. And it becomes far more important, and the end of time, as we get down, you get into the Holy of Holies someday, and I think the close of probation, I said this earlier, close of probation is moving on every human being. Adventists used to teach this quite strongly. We don't teach it as much as we ought to today. But the Bible says that he that is holy, let him be. And he that is filthy, let him be. And that's different from evangelical theology because in their theology, which is true if you die before, that you can die. You can die in Christ. And, uh, but the difference is that you and I are headed toward a time when we cannot sin once those angels of mercy fold their wings. We will become a marvel to the universe, not by our own power, but by the power of the Lord Jesus, that while we still have this carnal nature, we keep him in jail, we don't feed him, you get him comatose, hallelujah. You remember my illustration now. And, and that's only about the grace of Christ. We come to the place where we will not knowingly sin against God's Ten Commandments. We won't do it. Not because we cannot do it, but because we will not do it. Because we've learned to hate sin with such a hatred and to love the Lord with such love. And Adventist message to the world is get ready for that time. That's our message. And you only find that message in the Holy of Holies. That's not perfectionism and it's not legalism. It's a submission to Christ who alone is our leader. He's not our leader in the bigger sense. He is our leader in the bigger sense, but he's our personal leader, our personal helper. Is Jesus able to take you through that time? I have people say, you know, oh, oh that'll never... I mean, I, oh, they, they act like they serve a weak Christ. We serve a powerful Christ. Amen. We serve a mighty God. We do not serve a God who's unable to carry His children. He would not have told us that to scare us. He's telling us that because He has the power to take us through it if we're willing to be submissive to Him. So that's a, that's a different... Challenge here in the end of time. All right, let's um, let's move to some other parts here. I want you to find that there are three laws that Paul talks about, and I want to talk about those for just a moment. Go, you know, you know about the part where he says those things I would do I don't do, and those things I wish I would do. I, you know, that part there, and it's a struggle with this carnal nature and the temptations around him. But notice verse uh, verse twenty one. I find then, in chapter 7, I find then a law, a what? That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So I may will to do good, but there's in me a law that's trying to get me to do wrong. Notice verse 22. For I delight in the law of what? which is according to the inward man. So Paul pictures two laws here. He pictures the law of sin, which is also in me, and he pictures the law of God, which is also in me. And the law of sin and the law of God are at war. It's the great controversy, if you please, in my heart and in my life and in my affections. And you would think that the law of commandments would be able to overcome the law of sin, wouldn't you? But it doesn't. You have to have a third law in order to overcome the law of sin. And I want to take you to where that is found. If you look at verse uh, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, This, this wretched being pulled back and forth. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind by the way, there's no there's no chapter divisions that needs to run together here. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind with the mind I serve the law of what? But with the flesh the So he says, you know, I've I've made up my mind, I want to serve God's law, and that's really where I want. But then that's that other law that's in my flesh, that carnal nature that wants to pull me the other way. But you need to keep reading. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in whom? Who do not walk to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The condemn, there's no condemnation. We're under a covenant with the Lord Jesus. Jesus spreads his covenant over us. And I compared that the other day to a, a marriage covenant. He spreads his covenant over us. We're in that covenant. And now there's another law that comes into place here. And I want you to, to see that. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, here's the third law. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of what? Sin and death. And I want to say hallelujah. The Ten Commandments needed help. It needed a lot of help. The Ten Commandments is not going to overcome that law of sin because they are clashing with each other. But this is where Christ comes in. You're li- you give your life to Christ where justification comes in. Christ steps in now and He becomes the living Christ. He interjects Himself into you. He comes to that assistance to the law of the mind, to the law of the commandments. And in Christ and in His power, you become an overcomer. So here you have both things together. You have both justification, the born-again experience, and out of that you have sanctification. And I always tell folk, you can never have justification unless it gives birth to sanctification. If you have justification and you say, well, I can, it doesn't matter if I continue to sin, then you don't have justification. Because justification is given to you so that you might no longer walk in the flesh. So that you no longer have to walk according to the carnal nature. It comes to join the law of commandments if you please. So justification always, what did I say? According to that verse, gives birth to sanctification. So we should quit giving excuses for walking with the flesh. That's the reason I talked about your willpower and how to unite your will with the will of Christ. How how much of the time does Jesus want to rule in your life? I said it earlier, didn't I? All right, look at verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There it is. In other words, the Ten Commandments may be there. You may have all the knowledge in the world, but it cannot overcome your carnal nature unless you have the third law, which is The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's why the Holy Spirit becomes very important to us. And that's why we should be praying every morning for the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who brings the living Christ into Jay Gallimore's life. Verse verse, uh, 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. See, that's why being under the law, that's why being Jewish and not accepting Christ as my Savior and staying under the law means I'm going to fail. Now, I love the health message, so hear me carefully. Health message is a wonderful thing, and I'm I'm sick of hearing people make fun of it. It was given to us for a good reason, but I'm going to use it as an illustration You can't eat healthy enough, and you should eat healthy. Somebody should have said amen. Amen. You cannot eat healthy enough to save you. I'm just using that as an example. You could use other examples. But should you eat healthy? Yeah. You have to have the third law come in. Your best intentions are like ropes of sand. Unless you have the third law, which is the law of the spirit of the life of Christ. Now, listen to verse 3. For the, what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Hallelujah. That's grace. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it on Calvary's cross. Verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Why is it so important that the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us? Because without the righteous requirement of the law, we cannot live. Let's get that through our head unless we're brought into harmony with the law of God, death is the sure result. We will not spend eternity saying, God, it was so nice to be here. By the way, do you think you'll lose, that you'll lose the ability to choose once you get to heaven? Is God going to lock you all into robots once you get there? Or does God want a, a universe filled with children and not robots? The fact is, the reason God takes people to heaven is so that they will be in compliance with the righteous requirements of the law. Because they don't want the junk we've got down here. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now listen to this, verse 5. No, that time can't be right. That's... i want to, I, I got to go quickly. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I want to say this is a sweet conscience. Remember my illustration and the old man that we threw in jail? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Come on, saints. What do you feed your mind on? Set your mind on the things of the world. Garbage in. Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I should have gone down to this one. Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now here is one that I give my, uh, these next two verses. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is what? You know why it's life and peace? Because you're submissive. You've surrendered. You're not fighting anymore. And now the next time that you have your dear Jehovah Witness friends show up at your door, or the next time you talk to your Baptist friends or your Methodist friends or whoever, and they tell you, you know what, I'm, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law because the law has been done away with. So have you ever read Romans chapter 8, verse 7? And here's what it says. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. What is enmity? It's its enemy. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not, what? Subject Subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. It's impossible for the carnal mind to be subject to the law of God. That's why I want the carnal mind dead in my life. But then here's the question. I say, so, if the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, what is the spiritual mind subject to? Exactly. Exactly. No other answer. If the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, then the spiritual mind is subject to the law of God. So, I'm out of time, but I'm going to look at, I'm going to steal a minute or two if you bear with me. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You want to come up in the right resurrection? That's why you're here. Then let the Spirit of the law of Christ come into your life and put to death the carnal mind. And do not feast on the carnal mind, but feast on the Spirit of God. For if the living Christ is in your life, when you die, you will come up in the right resurrection. But if He's not, no matter what your profession But here's good news. Verse 26. Talks about this groaning of the creation. Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Whole creation groaning. But verse 26. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. I want to plead with you. That's why you should get up and be with the Lord every morning. Don't. Pray for your children, yes. Pray for your spouse, pray for your husband, pray for your wife, pray for your church, but pray for yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, look, I've got these weaknesses and I don't like them. And I want, by the grace of God, you've got to help me to overcome them today. Today, I want to lay those on. I want to lay anything I love that's not according to your will, I want to get that out of my life. That struggle needs to go on with each one of us every morning of every day. And all day long, we need to hear the words of Jesus. Watch and pray. That's another way of saying, be on the alert and pray. Because there is an enemy who's like a roaring lion. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart, Holy Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints, the Lord Jesus, according to the will of God. And then I'll conclude with this glorious promise. And do we know those are in the Spirit those who are pleading with God. By the way, Ellen White says, let me give you that real quick one here, that when we are praying earnestly and we're praying perseveringly and we're praying passionately with God, that that's what is meant by that verse when it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And she says, it is a sure sign that God is about to answer your prayer exceedingly, abundantly more than you can ask or think. Does God want to give you a glorious character? Does He want to give you a Christ-like character? Does He want to give you holiness? Holiness is a wonderful word. It's Christ-likeness. And by the way, the Bible says, pursue holiness without which no man can see the Lord. I didn't say that. Pursue holiness. You think think Jesus will disappoint you when you plead with Him? Lord, help me to be like Jesus. Help me to be like you today. I've got a lousy temper today. It's going to be tested. Give me victory over that temper. I've got an imagination that's diseased today. Lord, give me victory over that imagination that I will not think on that anything that comes through my mind, that I'd kick it out of my mind by the grace of God. You think you're struggling with appetite or whatever it is that if you say, Lord Jesus, I've got to have help today with this. You think Jesus will not hear that? You think He will not come to your assistance? You think He doesn't want to give you a holy character? I'm telling you, He went to Calvary's cross to save you. When you pray like that, all things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. If you respond to the call, He predestines to save you. Isn't that good news? He doesn't take away your will, but if you respond every morning, every day, He predestines you to victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus so mighty, so wonderful, so glorious. Help us to quit giving you excuses about our weakness and start thinking about your strengths. Father, all of us in this room, every last one of us, ministers included, poor, pitiful human beings who've been hit Hard, with nearly 6,000 years of degradation, with a world that has learned to deceive and a devil and his evil angels who've honed their killing skills, their deceptions, their greater deception today than ever before. But we're crying out to you, save us by your mighty power. Father in heaven, it's not enough to have the law of God in our heart. We've got to have the law of the spirit of the life of Christ. We've got to have the spirit of God bringing the living Christ. Father in heaven, give us the love for what you love and to hate what you hate. So, Father in heaven, as we leave this place, may we hear the final end of chapter 8 when Jesus comes that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord in Jesus name Amen This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix Arizona GYC A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centred and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.